This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Today's show is the second of a three-part series with former rugby player Aidan McCullen. Now he's an executive coach. His podcast, The Innovation Show, is a, is a must-listen for me. And his book, Undisruptible, well, I've read it twice. Last week, we talked to Aidan about nutrition and breathing and how he is ever-evolving as a father and a husband by learning new things each week. This week, we discuss Aidan's playing career from being capped with the Ireland Test Team, playing for Leinster, his arrival in France with his first club, Dax, and then his dream club, Toulouse, before finishing his career in England with London Irish. He's so good to chat to, and in this episode, we cover topics such as discipline versus talent, manifestation, something that I'm a big believer in, and the role of mentors, something we delve even deeper into next week in the third and final part. But we started by Aidan talking about one of the great minds of the 20th century. There's a guy I love called Buckminster Fuller. He's a great innovator, and he was way ahead of his time. And he said, there's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. And I often think about that from sport. What he's talking about is any budding idea. If you're like an innovator and you start like VCs investing in startups, they don't really know what's going to work. Maybe they know the really crappy ideas, but so many VCs passed up on great businesses because they just couldn't see it working. And then there's the shift in the business environment, customer desires change. And all of a sudden something's really popular. We have a global pandemic and we, are, we have Zoom. <laughs> it's stock price goes through the roof. So stuff like that. And uh, I, I think the same happens. I, I often think like you as a coach, like sometimes you'll pass over going, oh, he's useless. And, and you won't mean, you, you know, you're so busy in life. Sometimes you'll just have to make a decision based on the information you have available. And you can't see sometimes potential in people. The coach will always tend towards the better players and encourage them more and overlook the younger player, the less talented caterpillars now. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And yeah, the, the immense impact that has on the psyche of those guys going forward, you, you know, we, you've read Outliers, Malcolm yeah. Gladwell, he talked about that, about, you know, they get more energy, then they get more confidence, then they get picked and they get drafted and then they get more coaching and they get better and better. It, it creates this kind of snowball effect. And that's the challenge. I mean, what does a coach do? Like, I mean, you know, you can't give your energy to everyone. So whatever was in me, and I don't know where it came from, I wanted to play a professional sport. <laughs> it didn't matter what, which one. I tried, I, mean, I tried the discus, you know, and I just didn't have a pathway. And, and the whatever way the stars collided, I ended up going to a school where I had to play rugby didn't want to, fought with my parents, wanted to play Gaelic football, blah, blah, blah. Ended up playing there. Took me a long time to actually get to even know what I was doing. And I was like 17, get in the senior team, start to do well. The coaches start putting intention into me, play really well next year. Our, our team gets the semi-final of the cup, the senior cup, which is unusual because we were a smaller school. And then I get picked in. Just so happens that year, there's a tour to Australia, tour to Australia with Leinster schools, get on there. What was the last name on the team sheet? The, the coach told me that and come back as player of the tournament because I, I didn't really drink and party over there. I trained and I worked hard and I recovered. And that's the discipline thing. But I probably only did that because I didn't have the complacency that came with being talented earlier. 
that I knew talent wasn't enough, that I had to put in the discipline. And I had formulated a formula that worked for me, which was work hard. Like during my leaving cert, the equivalent of the GCSE or the A-levels, I used to study for half an hour, stretch, study for an hour, practice passing. And this was all in prep for going away. And and that's been always with me since. And I think that's what that gave me was just that, that understanding that talent without disciplines not enough and discipline without talent is not enough like Eddie O'Sullivan the uh, the former Irish coach said to me there's three types of players there's talented players there's disciplined players and then the goal of the coach is to make the talented players disciplined and he says because if you're if you're a disciplined player who lacks talent you can only go a certain level but oftentimes they get further than they should because the really talented players don't have any discipline and I actually count myself there, you know, that I was a, a disciplined player who who learned talent rather than having an innate one. And, and, you know, when I think back, I thought too much. I overanalyzed stuff in my head when it's playing. You know, I, you know, it could have been there a split second earlier if I hadn't actually scanned and went, what if, what if, what if, you know? And that's what people mean when they say you're thinking too much. And, uh, you know, again, these are all, it's only a failure if you don't learn from it. And I, I've learned so much from those mistakes or obstacles or struggles or setbacks. And that's the that's life. That's what wisdom comes from. And I think that's worth passing on to the other generations, whether it's your children or coaches or the world through a podcast, whatever it is. You've explained how your discipline enables you to get above the noise, to be spotted and selected. So what else can caterpillars do to turn into butterflies or, or to put it another way? other examples you've seen of people changing themselves to progress? I would like to th- say self-awareness. And, but when I think back of that version of me, I, did, I didn't have that much self-awareness. I would, have, I would have loved to have a supportive mentor that would give me really honest feedback, your attitude towards the referee there in that instance. That's, is that the person you want to be? Or you had a great game now, what can we derive? What lessons do you, can you learn from that? Or you had a terrible game. What prep state did you get yourself in? Because I, I didn't have that. And, and I've, I've actually only talked during the COVID lockdown, talked to my dad about this. I didn't have that support from my dad. And my parents were of a different era. My dad didn't even know his dad. His dad died of alcoholism when my dad was four. So he didn't even know him. So he'd know he had no role model of what uh, a father was, and he worked extremely hard. So he wasn't really there at my games and all that kind of stuff. And I often wonder, Ben, is that was that a good thing or not? Because if you think the fact that he wasn't there, I didn't have a, that gallery to perform to. I just played for the playing. And that's an interesting talk for me. And I actually don't know. We were talking before came on air about these kind of sliding door moments and you just never know so i don't know but i think being willing to listen to feedback is huge like i i put it in a different context uh, a caterpillar in my life at the moment my son jake he's, he's seven um and i was so fortunate to have read carl dweck's book mindset and the whole concept of recognize the effort not the outcome so with him, when he plays a game, 
Gaelic football are national sport here and hurling, though they're a national sport with the sticks. <laughs> the, the Irish mad people run around with sticks. And he, any, anytime he plays, I, I never go, oh, you did, what a goal, or anything. I'm going, you got that goal because you worked really hard way back then, or somebody else is going to kind of go, you're a little piece of work there. Help that happen. And he, they know him. They, he's become known, and he's not playing long. He's only playing six months. He's become known as the workhorse of the team. And I wonder also then, is that innate or was those little tiny words of encouragement about what a great worker he is, has that made him an even better worker? So I'm saying all that to go cast that back to the that younger version of me and go, I don't know whether having the, the support of my parents, and I had the support morally, but not presence was a good thing or not but I just had this constant desire to strive like I, I used to train on Christmas day like you know just because it was like well I don't I don't want to I don't actually want to look back and go I regret not doing something and that was with my training I didn't want to regret and kind of go well I could have given it my all and if anything like we've spoken about before I would regret not knowing more about the power of the mind in sport mm-hmm. that's the only thing and and actually that was outside of my control it just didn't wasn't in my consciousness and I, I and for any young players or players current players listening to your podcast I would say look at that because it is you you're obviously if you're playing the sport already you have the equipment you have the body but it's the driver of that body is your mind and that really has a massive impact on your outcomes and so you went from uh, school and you had your time um, overseas but then you had quite a large proportion of your career over in Leinster and you're playing in the back row there at, but you had in your head this vision that you wanted to go to the best club in Europe you know and that was that was a vision right and no more than that they hadn't rung you up you, ha- you hadn't got a mate there that was saying don't worry I'll sort something out for you or you hadn't seen <laughs> there was a spot in the team there because they had some pretty quali- good players in your position but it goes back to this kind of hybrid of manifestation slash visualization slash the discipline to go towards a a goal that you don't actually know if it's there or not whether they're ever going to call you or give you a chance but you you got there yeah amazing yeah how did it all I mean can you can you sum up that journey and and how that vision physically got you to, to to lose and what would have happened if you hadn't would you have just kept going well, you, you point out actually a very valuable point when you, we talked about contrast. So when I went to DAC, so the, the DAC story was actually remarkable because um, like this life is so funny when you look at these great serendipity. So I wanted to play for Leinster, right? And I got offered Connacht, Ulster, Munster contracts. And I held out and I went to Leinster and I was studying French and German in college. And there was a guy in my class, a mature student, and he had a, he, he was magnificent French speaker. He was like, the guy was, I don't know, 50 back then. And uh, he used to read keep the French newspaper. And he goes, oh, hey, hey, French sucks. You got you to gotta read some French. You can't just rely on what you see in the class. So he gives me a copy of keep and it's folded on one page. And I had it in my bag for ages. <laughs> it was dog-eared and in bits and tattered. And one day I picked it out because it was on a bus and I had nothing to read. And um, 
IEC, and it, and the title was Dax en crise, which means Dax in crisis. And it was a story about all these players who had left Dax, Rafael Ibanez, Olivier Magna, Fabian Pelouse, all these major players who played there who left all of a sudden, and the club was in crisis. It, it couldn't get anybody in. And the, there was still Division 1. There was 24 clubs in Division 1 back then. It was nuts. So this seed is planted, and I go, hmm, because I, I had an option of taking Erasmus for a year. Now, the problem with taking Erasmus would be that I'd take myself off the consciousness in, in Ireland of all the coaches and stuff. And I'd done well. I was an Irish 21 player, all that stuff. I was in the, I was in the, the field of consciousness for picking and, you know, Ireland Day and all this and where, who's going where and all that. So next thing that happened then was uh, I, I get there, right? So big, long story, I get there. But what, what I had to actually pull a lot of levers to get there. So I first went to see who else had ever played in Ireland and played in Dax. And there was only two guys, a guy called Dean McCartney and a guy called Donald Spring of any high level. And Dean played in Poe and Donald played in Banier. And, and Donald happened to be my former coach in Lansdowne Rugby Club where I played. And I, I just rang him. I was like, Springer, any chance you can have? He goes, oh, yeah, you, the president there was one of my best mates. It's <laughs> like, um, like, this is the kind of stuff that happens, but you gotta, you got to be forceful about it. So then he he gets in touch with Eric Goose was his name, this man. And they go, yeah, sure, we'll look after him. He's a good player. So I, what, I, what I did was I, I pretended I had lots of offers from clubs in England because English clubs were one of them first to go fully professional so I was like yeah Bath are after me London Irish and Wasps and they were like wow what they Wasps oh he must be good and I was like I'm kind of feeling bad about all these porkies so anyway uh it works <laughs> right so I get there but here's the thing in the interim Eric August passes away so I like back just put in context, this was the day where it was a phone call. There wasn't even mobile phones around. It was like early, it was 97, 98, you know, and maybe it was a mobile phone, but they were like bricks and I didn't have one. So uh, an email wasn't really popular, websites, all that stuff. So I arrived, <laughs> this, this guy arrived with two massive bags, you know, from Ireland and a Ryanair flight and then got a train down from Paris to save money and uh, arrives in the club and they're like, oh, like, oh. And the club secretary comes in and he's like, uh, who are you? <laughs> and I was like, Jusui McCoolin. <laughs> they're like, uh, okay, why are you here? And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm one of your players. Eric August arranged it for me. <laughs> and like in my head, I was going to be on like a decent contract, right? So they go, give me a second. Club secretary's like, we need to get the president then. Eric passed away, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, no. And next thing, the new president comes down. We sit in a room and they kind of, I was like a horse in the fair. They were like, look at me up and down. Kind of, you know, anyway, long story short, they started to negotiate in French with each other in front of me. And they didn't know that I spoke French and I didn't let on I did. So they were like, uh, started kind of going, oh, we'll give them the, we'll give them this and we'll give them that. No, don't give them that. Don't give them that. You don't need to give them that. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> he's dumb Irish man. No, he's fine. And I was just like there, sitting there like, you know, looking like a donkey flutting, swatting flies with his tail. <laughs> and um, then they stop and they go, okay, we have an idea. And then they start, and, and they had mentioned in the, in their conversation, a car, they'd mentioned what, they used to do this thing called food tokens. So they used to give you these coupons and you could go to various restaurants who were supporters around town. 
they'd mentioned a few different things. And then when they made me the offer, they, they didn't include any of that. So they say this in broken English. And then I start speaking French <laughs> and I say, what about this? And what about the apartment? What about the car? And they were like, and their face just dropped. They're like, you speak French? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. And then they're like, okay, we can agree to all those terms. Anyway, so that, that's, that, so that got me to Dax. And I had a magnificent year there as well. I had the injuries and stuff, but it was a brilliant year. But w- when I was there, I'd never seen Toulouse play because I didn't really watch rugby on TV. And it wasn't, you know, you couldn't, would have been hard to watch back then because you would have had to have like a uh, yeah. cable TV. Yeah, or anyway, I saw them play on the, on the TV and I was like, oh my God, I didn't know rugby could be played like that. It was just like art. And I was like, this is unreal. And then I was like, I want to play for them. And I used to write down, jot down notes and I, I wrote down, if I'm not a regular in the Irish team by 28, I want to play for in France and ideally in Toulouse. I wrote that then and forgot about it, man. That's the thing. I actually forgot about that. Then life happened in the meantime, go back to Ireland uh, again, get offered the contracts from all the provinces except Leinster. Then Leinster come in at the last minute because they had an injury, offered me a contract. I, I go there. I'd finished college and a, and a master's at the time. Go there, had four great years, got capped. And then that crisis happened where the coach, Shepard, hooked me, wouldn't pick me, and in not such a pleasant way either. Like, you know, it wasn't pleasant. And, and uh, it was only because of that then, the Toulouse thing. And I contacted a French agent. And again, I found out who was the agent who was friendly with Toulouse. I got him. And I got to this guy, uh, told him, and he's like, and I was so desperate, man. I used to sort of be ringing him every day. It's like going, any, any news, any news? And he's like, and, and the first stuff he says, Toulouse. He goes, Toulouse are interested. And I was like, what? And he's like, no, no, they're. And then I ring him. It's like, and happened with Toulouse. He's like, no, they've gone quiet. And then he's like, but Claremont are interested and Biarritz are interested. And, and I just pictured him sitting there with beers, with his mates eating pizza and throwing a, a, a dart at a map the list and they keep, yeah. yeah, go, yeah hey, yeah. it's the Irish guy. And they're like, shh, shh. we'll pretend we're serious here. <laughs> so anyway, this happened, this happened across like three months. So then nothing's happened with Toulouse, man. You know, and I, and I actually just made peace with That's not happening. Then I get flown over to Claremont and uh, Claremont offer a contract. And I say to the agent, would it be any harm leaking this meeting to the press to see if anything happens with Toulouse, right? So then uh, the thing comes out in the Midi-Olympique, the midweek uh, sports paper in France, and it says, uh, McCullen entre Toulouse et Clermont. So he's, he's stuck between either or. I was flown to Toulouse on the Friday, signed that day, man. Oh. I signed on the same day. Like I actually signed on a napkin. I was so desperate. They were telling me, yeah, well, like, and, and the, the welcome was totally different. I mean, I was welcome to Toulouse. They drove up and because they, they have these Peugeot sports cars for the players. They're all, you know, and they drive up, they drove up and they went, this will be your car when you join us. And I was like, oh, no, you're, <laughs> no way. I was like, I was trying to play a cool. I was like, yeah, great, great. <laughs> then they, then they bring me to the Michelin star restaurant in the club. Right. So I meet a couple of the heads. The team were just preparing to go for the European Cup final. <laughs> they, uh, or sorry, it, it was just after European Cup final, and they still had a game to go. So they were playing against Narbonne that night. So 
they were doing their captain's run. I come there, meet them all. I was like, oh, these guys are legends, you know. And uh, then I get next day, go to lunch with the president and my and my and the agents, like trying to negotiate and et cetera, et cetera. And he's negotiating over like a few grand for me. And I was like, and I again, they didn't know I spoke French. <laughs> so I pipe up in French and I was going, look, Toulouse is the best club in the world. I'll pay you that money to actually come and join. And they all laughed. And then they're like, no, it's a deal. Done deal. Done deal. And my agents look at me like, going, are you going to get you another couple of grand? I was like, a couple of grand, my ass. So um, I say, okay, where do we sign? They're like, oh, we don't have the papers. Like, but I said, I want to go home and just know I'm, I'm You're in. out of where I am. And uh, the president goes, grabs a napkin and goes, let's, and we literally write on a napkin. It was brilliant, man. And uh, yeah, so it was just, it was just amazing. Like, and, and the funny thing, when I think about that, man, I didn't over visualize it. I didn't dwell on it every night. I didn't dream it. I didn't feel it. I, I just kind of sent it out there and then a load of stuff happened. And you know, that, that's something I, I'm not good when I, uh, intentionally manifesting. I don't. Uh, I don't let it go very well. I'm, I'm kind of going. Well, maybe you should pay attention to what you did that time. That's how I've kind of come around to that manifestation stuff, and I'm a, I believe in all of this. But when there's something that I really would like to, you know, man, your next project or whatever it is, you manifest it to a point where you do let it go. Is there anything behind that? Any science behind that, and why you should do that? The really interesting one is the RAS that I mentioned in the book, the reticular activating system, the, this part of base your brain where it's like, oh, I want to buy a black Tesla. And you've never seen one before, like a black Tesla. And then you walk and you're like, everybody is a black Tesla. You're, How the hell did that happen? So this part of the brain is like a filter and it, it filters out things because we have such an onslaught of information that it only filters out what you deem necessary for your survival. So when you actually put something on, when you say something's interesting to you or important to you, your brain then just kind of starts to prune stuff and kind of go, oh, well, Ben thought about that just before he went to sleep. It's obviously important to him. I'll find a way to get us there. And it's kind of like this uh, sniffer dog that sniffs out how to get there. So that's the RAS. But the, the other thing that I've learned about the overdoing it is that if you do it from a place of, oh, I need to win the lottery, I need a, a you actually are dwelling on the need and the, the lack. So you actually intensify the lack. And that's been something I haven't mastered yet. <laughs> uh, if, if I was, I'd be like coming to you straight from like a magnificent <laughs> studio, like, you know, um, but I, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure that one out, but uh, that's, that's the science behind it, the RAS. And uh, I don't know the science about repelling it based on, over overdoing it but um the thing i've i've learned or read like you said is just put it out there and forget about it you know yeah and almost almost when you do have those thoughts have them at the beginning or the end of the day yeah and then and then almost release them during the rest of the day and pick them up in small ways bookend i love the way that that's you've 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 explained that so back to toulouse it's amazing and the whole place and it's the way they play and the style that that it doesn't matter who's coaching them, that style will remain and say centric to it, that movement around the ball, the Vilpra, who was the famous uh, coach back in the 70s that kind of stamped all of that. You must have had a wonderful time on and off the field in Toulouse, but injuries got involved. I'm just as interested really to know how that rugby career 
because you said you kind of you mentally have left rugby now how long did it take you to do that and did you already know as you were leaving the program that it was time for your next chapter or were you still feeling a little bit aggrieved that injuries has stopped you having the perfect ending how did did that all look for you going forward because we have it all the time and you talk about it in your amazing book you talk a lot about change and being open to disruption and knowing that actually that's a real positive attribute as to have us to look positively at change we talked about you know the the contrasts and the contrast links to this there, there's a there's a thing that i i loved like so I, I was saying to you that i held a grudge against that coach for such a long time i blamed him for such a long time and and also i did at the end of my career was so angry for such a long time about it didn't finish the way I wanted to. I'd got there, I'd got to Toulouse. Then, so what we didn't talk about then is I went to London Irish and I, and I didn't have a good time in London Irish. I was, I was injured. I got an operation I shouldn't have got uh, on my knee. It exposed arthritis. I was masking it with, with diphene and stuff, wrecking wow. myself. You know, wow. I get my missus to drop me to the club so nobody would see how bad I was. So I wasn't hobbling. So it looked like I walked from my house and, uh, yeah, so it was just holding it together. And then, and you know, what I've realized since was a lot of it was the ego. A lot of it was like, this is, I genuinely mean this. Rugby was such a gift in my life. It taught me so many things, but it wasn't my thing in life. It wasn't my why I'm here. I don't think that, I, I really don't. I think it was part of it to go, you're going to learn a lot of stuff here. And if you don't learn it, you know, we're going to bring you back and you're going to do it all over again. <laughs> so I, I learned so much because I was I, I was angry in London Irish, not getting picked. But man, you know, when I look back, I kind of go, well, I wouldn't have picked me. I was probably at 90 percent of what I was capable of because I was injured and I was angry because I was injured and I had all this negative energy. So anyway, because I was injured and, and this is, you know, back to the being able to manage the contrast. I can see that it gave me the opportunity to go, okay, well, it's over. So what are you going to do here? So I started to look at things. I started to read. And I, and by the way, I didn't read, like I read voraciously now, book a week because of the show. And I read reports and stuff. And, and it's my job. I'm a consultant. I, I read and I translate you know, often academic stuff to business leaders and stuff. And that started because of the injuries, because I was I started to do stuff on myself. I started to read uh, and, and, you know, books like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill started to look uh, even Paul McKenna he had a book called Change Your Life in Seven Days. And I used to do his hypnosis and uh, just trying to get out of this trough that I was in. And it took me a long time. And, and one of the turning points was this that was. When I realized actually that all those hurts I was holding on to were like poison in me. And, you know, there's a great saying that it's not a snake bite that kills you. It's not removing the venom. And I'd been bitten by a lot of snakes, but I was just, you know, and, and then I was becoming over identifying with like, oh, poor me. I was so hard done by and all this kind of going down. Dude, you had an amazing career for the talent level you were at. You did amazingly well. So cop on and snap out of it. So... That was really useful. But I think back to your point, you have to be deliberate about the end of your career yourself. Like it's very difficult. You think of you as a coach or a union, they're managing so much other things. They don't know what it's like to be you. They don't know what you want because you don't know what you want as a player. 
most like and it's fair enough like i mean it's like coming out of college most people don't know what they want or, or, or even going into college they don't even want to know what subjects to choose it's the same because you're so involved in the moment in rugby that you don't invest those moments in the future so the time the reflective time what am i going to do what capabilities can i be building that I might be able to use later on etc and it was only through that struggle the last two years in london that i started to really look at stuff i started to look at businesses how do businesses work what could i do what actually could i do <laughs> it's like what's, what's on my cv i can pass off both hands <laughs> um I really leaned into the whole idea of the gig economy, Ben. And, and uh, like I, I talk about it and, I, and actually, you know, this has been a useful kind of thing I picked up is that if I'm going to talk about it, I need to be living it and believe it. So I, I work as a, so this will sound all random, but I'm, I'm a university lecturer in Trinity College. I do loads of keynotes now based on the book. I do workshops, corporate workshops. I'm an exec coach um, and I do, podcast as a service so i actually do i offer that as a service to some businesses sometimes privately where it's just for the internal team so it might be a dispersed organization across so i came up with this idea during covid because like how is a ceo going to communicate the strategy and bring all a global company together so anyway that that stuff and they all sound like totally different things and then i do the show and then i write but they're all the same thing to me they're all input output so i take in this knowledge i read it i love doing that and then i try and find a way that i can actually articulate that in a meaningful way that will connect with people and help them make better decisions and and call that a consultant if you want but that's what i believe i do and ultimately you know i i love you know even what you're doing with your podcast as a coach you're living a life of service in a way and i would rather be making my living doing that than on wall street buying and selling deals or some i'm, I'm actually reading a book on enron at the moment i'm interviewing the author uh, smartest guy in the room a lady called bethany mclean and it's just amazing man I, I, and i just look at that and i go i could not do what those guys did they screwed over so many people you know it was just horrific but i understand that how it could happen you know because greed can take over and power and ego and um I'm just so glad, glad that that's what I do. I, I live a life of service where I give rather than, than take. And next week, we'll look at how Aidan has applied all his learning to serve the various sectors he's worked in. One of the many things I've loved about my chats with Aidan is his storytelling and giving colour to ideas. Even just chatting to a coach about the players in their squad and who might be a caterpillar amongst the butterflies fires up deeper thinking. Don't underestimate storytelling to wrap around any message you want to get across. One of my old captains wanted to emphasise to us as players to take more ownership of what we did and how we acted. And he told me this story that I've remembered for over 20 years and I'll tell you now. There was a new young lawyer clever, brash, full of confidence. He wanted to outwit the old and wise lawyer, so he came up with a foolproof plan. Meet the old lawyer and have a small baby bird, a hatchling, in his closed fist. Ask the old lawyer, is this hatchling alive or dead? If he says it's alive, then he will squeeze tighter around his fist and kill 
the small bird. If he says it's dead, then he will simply open his fist and watch the bird fly away. He asks the old wise lawyer, is this bird in my hand alive or dead? The old lawyer looks up at him and simply says, the answer to your question lies in your own hands. The final part of my chat with Aidan is our next show. And it's another fascinating listen, touching on topics like giving feedback and finding a mentor to reciting the story of how Fujifilm reinvented themselves while Kodak became the victims of their own success. There's so much within all of the messages and stories he tells that we can apply to what we do. I really hope you can join us next Wednesday. As ever, all the details to anything we have mentioned and more will be found in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast, as well as links to all the previous shows in this series and the first on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. Look, I'm always thankful for all the great messages I receive on email and social media, but a small ask. I'd love those to also come through the reviews we get on Apple. So please, if you can spare time, leave a review and a rating to get us out there to a wider audience. This has been the Ben Ryan podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next Wednesday. Wednesday.